0: What you want more than anything is you want to meet people with different experiences. And I've always sort of found you would see things that you would not automatically have come across.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. I'm Scott Chaloner, and in each episode, I'm joined by a director, a CEO, a CFO, a government minister, a chairman president and who knows maybe one day even the Duke of Sussex or just Harry as he's now known. The aim here is to discover who these people are, the people who get up each morning and make this country work. We discuss everything from inspiring quotations to children's education in this episode, and of course the innovation and success that makes it all worthwhile in the end. We also get their take on the current economic and political landscape here in the UK. Um, I'm delighted today to be joined by Claire Dimple the owner and head of Tadpole's Nursery School in Chelsea. Plato once said... Do not keep children to their studies by compulsion, but by play, and it's fair to say that that's very much the approach that Claire and Tadpole's Nursery are championing. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, I present Claire Dimple. Uh, Claire, welcome. It's an absolute pleasure having you on the uh, the program with us today. Thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. it, it, it's a very interesting time to be chatting.
1: Oh, it certainly is. Um, of course, Claire, you're an early years provider setting in uh, West London with um, around sort of 21 employees under you and well over 100 students that's on role as well. Um, with that is of right. With all um, that's going on, um, how has it been for you trying to navigate the last few weeks essentially?
2: It's been a huge challenge actually. Um, very interesting, but a huge challenge. Um, as you know, we were asked to close on the 20th, which we did, but remained open and still are as um, a hub for early years emergency workers. Um, we joined in with another uh, uh, nursery just down the road for that. And my staff, um, we are actually, our site is actually effectively closed. My staff are walking children down to the other site every day, which I think is, it, it is shows uh absolute amazing loyalty and dedication Um, It's been very hard because I I don't wish to, the government offer a furlough is terrific, but we don't wish to do that. I don't want to furlough my staff because we're hoping to to offer a full-time early years curriculum with all their um, early years foundation stage and everything going forward into the next term to, to support and help parents at home. Obviously, we are a fee-paying school, so that's brought up some issues with some parents. They're most been very supportive on this. Mm. And we are looking at other means of funding going forward uh, as bank loans. But funny enough, a bank, uh, uh, a bank it, you do have to jump through quite a few hoops for that. So we're looking at other methods to fund this going forward because we realize that a lot of this is going to be retrospectively we're going to have to pay the money back and i don't really want to get my school my nursery which has been going for 40 years and my loyal staff into into these difficulties where we might have to close entirely
1: yes absolutely it's uh, certainly uh, best avoided getting into uh, that position so when you say you're looking at uh, different sort of forms of uh, funding as it were what sort of uh, schemes perhaps are you looking into at the present time
2: well, at the moment, I'm actually looking into to increasing an overdraft facility with a banker, which is what they suggested rather than taking out one of the government loans. Um, I'm also we were in the process before this began of amalgamating with some uh, investors and uh, with the hopes of expanding. Um, I hope that we'll have been talking to investors. We are sort of still on track, but obviously their lives are on hold as well, so they don't kind of know where they're going either. So it is all a little bit up in the air, but my hopes are that if we could start by half-term in June, uh, at the latest, uh, at the end of May, June, um, then I have told parents I'll be running the school um, two weeks longer – uh, we'll be running into a holiday club time, not running holiday club, but running full full nursery till then to make up time. And we just, it really is at the moment, a sort of day-to-day planning and, and keeping on top of everything, answering questions, keeping in touch with parents, trying to reassure them, trying to help them with their children's. Obviously, the children's psychology is very, very important to us too, to make sure these children are not getting anxious, understand what's happening without frightening them. It, it, it's quite a—it's quite an effort. I have to say, my staff are being amazing, absolutely amazing. Um, many of whom have been with me a long time, so I really don't want to put their jobs in uh, in jeopardy. All my business, and I fear very much going forward that quite a lot of smaller nurses will be in jeopardy, and you know will have to close, and which will be very sad.
1: Absolutely, it's a very difficult time uh, for the sector, and um, especially as you say as well, taking it day by day. That um, it's very difficult to essentially be proactive when the advice does tend to change as often as it does. Absolutely, um, exactly. Now, um, before, of course, um, you um, mentioned uh, the expansion um, as well, Claire, which you are hoping to, of course, uh, get finalised. And of course, the outbreak has been a little bit of an interference there. Um, what was the um, original thinking behind looking to um, expand? Um, if you could just um, tell me a bit more about that
2: um well we are as you see from our, our, our article in parliamentary review we are very much um an outdoors learning we one of our uh, usps is our lovely ecology garden and one of the reasons I'm doing was doing this we were thinking very much about the environment particularly in west london in in london we were, were trying to find somewhere where we could recreate yet another garden uh, i I think when we're talking environment um we need to start with the children. this is where we start i mean we we are all in um you know where we're trying to save the planet but if we can start with our children, it would be of enormous benefit to teach them um from early years what, what this means and how we can do the planet good and how we can help and do our part um and and, and that Going forward, this might help the next generation. So uh, that is my sort of expansion. I don't want to just expand into lots and lots of nurseries. I really want to expand into the same area, um, staying where I am in in Chelsea, but with that in mind, with a sort of more, not forest school, but with an outdoor um, environmental learning approach.
1: Absolutely. And um, you mentioned, of course, your parliamentary review article there, there Claire, for those um, who haven't read it. Um, you do speak about how the nursery's mission statement puts a huge emphasis on uh, child's play as well. Um, I think um, there's a great Plato quote in there, do not keep children to their studies by compulsion, but by play. And that very much is the heart of uh, your approach. Um, could you perhaps it, expand on that a little bit um, and tell me how that approach is borne out for the benefit of the listeners? Um,
2: it is very much my approach. Um, we de- with with children we have to take them all as individuals, and some children actually do settle well and love um, learning through writing and reading and drawing. But some children really do need the physical play, the outside, the being able to explore, the uh, being able to, to to work out problems for themselves, and that often comes through play, particularly if they're playing with another child. Um, with another child, they can often sort out arguments, sort out disputes through the play. Through, And it's very good for them to see that this can be done. And, you know, if it sometimes doesn't work out, that also teaches some form of resilience to a child. And it's really vital that this happens. Um, and for some children who are actually having, having problems, maybe with playing with other children, we do sort of set up Things like a sort of Lego club where they, they play together. We don't interfere, but we we'll watch them play together to make sure they understand the sharing aspect. And um, particularly with children have, uh, who have specific needs, this can be, and, and are quite isolated, this can be very helpful. But all done through play. Outside play, physical play is of enormous importance, particularly to boys. Um, I hate talking about um, boys and girls not being the same, but they're not. And boys really do need uh, huge amounts of physical play, and I hope at this moment when they are at home that the physical they are getting the physical outside that they need where, where, wherever possible because this is really vital to their development.
1: Absolutely, and the expansion really giving them more exposure to that outdoor environment is only going to complement that, isn't it?
2: It is. Well, this is what we're hoping very much, but you know we have yet to to get. We were in very, very early stages of of, of this move and, um, of course, it's very much on ice at the moment.
1: (laughs) Yes, and let's hope very much so that beyond um, the outbreak, um, that can start to be uh, borne out, absolutely. Um I also understand from um, your review article, Claire, that to ensure everything does run smoothly behind the scenes, um your staff do have to undergo a lot of regular training and retraining. Now, there are some very well-documented issues in that field. Um, Would you say that you've encountered some of these yourself in your line of work, had any difficulties up- upskilling staff, or does this tend to go somewhat more unhindered in your case?
2: Um, are you talking at present or in general
1: um, I would say um, at this point in time um, in general um, given the um, issues that we've had over the last few years in this um, sort of area
2: um, well I'm incredibly lucky with my staff because I, I retain them we we do so much training and I give them so many opportunities to train and expand what they, they, they would like um, and I think this has been an enormous help we do operate within my nursery a bonus system where if, a, if a, uh, we have various staff taking off on various uh, leadership roles in curriculum where they can earn a little bit more money doing that and it focuses them, so I have two maths coordinators, two outside learning coordinators, and this really focuses and gives them some leadership skills of their own. And I think that's been an enormous help to the nursery It is terribly difficult retaining staff and I feel very much that the government still needs to differentiate between early years education and childcare. And I think there are two quite different aspects of the same thing in that we are not childcarers and babysitters. We are early years educators and and I think there is... um, there should be more demarcation on that and, and I think more recognition that early years need to be highly skilled and highly educated and and, and really understand a child's psychology.
1: Absolutely. So it's not just essentially blurring, um, well, sort of making sure that that line between the two it isn't as blurred as it is at the moment. So the government needs to show some more recognition in that regard. Um, but uh, also- I feel so. Mm, Absolutely. But also um, when you talk about uh, practitioners and the need for those um, vital skills as well, especially in the understanding of a uh, child psychology. Another thing that I recall you did raise in the article as well, Claire, is a shortage of male practitioners in this area as well, in early years education as a whole. Um, Why do you think that is?
2: Well, I think historically um, it hasn't been looked at as a, a main job. The caring roles have always been to, to the mother, to the female. I hope that this is changing. Uh, we do have male practitioners, of course. Uh, again, the problem is, again, with salaries, that the male has always been looked at, um, rightly or wrongly, as a provider. And salaries typically are not as high as they are in other sectors. Um, this is why you find many more in primary we we, you know we cannot replicate what is happening in primary we just don't have a funding Mm. to do that um but if you are talking about um the males we have had they have been amazingly good they've all gone on to do either teaching degrees higher up teaching degrees or to start something of their own i have um I have one teacher who was amazing teacher with us for four years. He's gone on to start his own school, his own nursery, which he was managed to buy in the other in Southfields in London. And I have another practitioner who was particularly good at physical play and yoga and he's gone on to run yoga pods. And and, and they have all sort of used their skills in early years to develop the next stages for themselves in their career, which has been fantastic. And uh, But I'm hoping I'm giving them a stepping off point to see that early years is really important.
1: Absolutely. It's about uh, changing perceptions. And I think um, that may well also be the solution to the other problem that you mentioned as well, um, that sort of distinction between early years and childcare. The changing perceptions of the the early years sector could well also help um, with that as well and really help those hopes be borne out in that sense.
2: Well, Well, I feel very much so. I feel very much that is incredibly important.
1: Absolutely. Um, Claire, as well, um, this podcast is, of course, all about leadership, a word that you've already uh, mentioned today, and really bringing that into uh, focus. Now, being a leader of adults and being able to lead and educate children are, of course, two very different types of leadership. So, what sorts of qualities does one need to be a leading practitioner in your field, would you say?
2: Um, I think one has to have a very, very firm overview on everything while being able to delegate. And I think delegation is actually important. I think um, this has been my baby over 40 years, and it's very, very hard to let go of a baby. But sometimes it is very important. One of the most important things is to know when to do that, when to delegate part of the leadership to others while keeping a a, a good overview on what is happening Um, and understanding that every obviously I've got twenty over 20 staff and they all have incredibly different personalities. Make sure those personalities are working well together. Make sure that the clashes are, are, are sort of, if there are clashes, that they're sorted out before they become enormously difficult within the classroom. Um, it is a very, very fine balancing act and uh, gets more so actually as time goes on. Um hopefully, as my staff will i hopefully say, uh we are a very happy, happy crew um you know they do get a lot of fun times as well as quite a lot of um serious times. I ensure that we have fun times going on, like um social events um I take them well they they have a lovely Christmas lunch, but also for instance, every half term we go down to the pub and we have a little joining in session. And then on a, in the summer they come up to my house and I cook them all lunch. Little things like that do help, do help them see that they're valued. And I think seeing they're valued is incredibly important as well.
1: Absolutely, um, I think it's the role of um, a leader in any context really to create that culture of positivity and motivation as well and really help with that sort of team bonding side of things and especially in um, the field of early years education that's of huge importance isn't it? To make sure mm-hmm. there's coherence there.
2: It, exactly, it, 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 it is hard, it, it, it's a huge balancing act and you know not everybody's going to get on with each other and we just have to make sure that we recognise that and um, like it's like any company, you know, it's not going to, everybody's not going to be wonderful and cheery with each other all the time. And when there are mental problems or they have family problems, I'm also there to support them. Uh, you know, I need to be a safety net for them as well.
1: Absolutely. And um given your years of experience um, in the industry um, as well, Claire, um what advice would you give elsewhere to somebody who was about to start their first day as an early years practitioner? You've talked about that importance of team building, but what other things would you really recommend that they do? Uh, uh, as a practitioner or as a owner of a nursery um let's take it from the uh, the latter let's say you're the owner of a nursery because I think there's more responsibility in that um in that case
2: I think the owner of a nursery needs to be very aware of building it slowly, not being too ambitious um, in a sense going with the flow it sounds it sounds the the best thing i've done is not to say this is where well, this is A, and I need to be at B, but seeing how B can be achieved in the best way, but slowly, let it let it grow, let it grow uh, by itself in a sense. I know that sounds a very odd thing to say, but I think if you push too much for your ambitions, they're not going to to, to come true. Um, I was saying it to one of my staff the other day at supervision. She's very very perfectionist. I said, you know, if I look Close my eyes and looked at what I expected my nursery to look like twenty years ago, um, which i I had this perfect vision in my my head of a nursery where there was beautiful wooden toys and no mess. I would be very sadly disappointed because it 's grown by itself it's grown into what it is, and i've had to accept there are some bits of it within my perfection I wouldn't like, but actually looking back at it are the right things. To that have been done
1: in the nursery absolutely um it's always good to look uh, back on such issues retrospectively as well because um again, you can reflect on the the decisions that have been made um what I'm also interested to sort of delve into um, as well claire is um just going back to the uh, the review article briefly, there are some fa- fantastic quotations in there from um, the likes of Plato, for example, but have there been any figures who've perhaps been an influence on your style of leadership within the the nursery?
2: Um, My style of leadership, no, I I do think that um, the playfulness of Dan Hughes has been enormously helpful to me. Um, I think that I became much more, my own constant going to training still, I think has really helped. Um, If I'd sat back, and, and I've always thought to myself, if you sit back and say I'm a perfect teacher, you won't ever be perfect. You're, nobody can ever be perfect. You need to go on uh, expanding training and you need to have a love for it. So I think what really has helped me was um, about six, seven years ago, going to train as a uh, a play therapist really made me understand uh, the very, very big importance of the psychology of the, of, of the young mind of the, um, uh Yes, Montessori was fantastically important and still is. But I think it's really just ongoing and picking, picking the bits that are important, which are a lot, lots of amazing people like that doing incredible things, and 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 really understanding that that one should go on with this learning all the time throughout one's life. It should never stop. Because once it stops and you think, there you are, my school's perfect, you failed really. <laughs> if you know what I mean, uh, it, you know, it isn't going to be perfect. You need to go on with it. So I think just, try, just pulling in all the different influences has been very, very important to me.
1: Yes. And it's positive that there are so many influences uh, there as well. Um, Because interestingly, um, you mentioned there that it's a constant learning process. And some people might believe that great leaders, great teachers are simply just born with innate qualities that make them good at what they do. But that's not necessarily the case, is it? It is a learning process. It's a process of development.
2: Absolutely. I mean, of course. I mean, you know, it is a process of development. And if a teacher stays where they've been for Ten, twenty 20 years without learning anything new they're never going to really be a very inspiring teacher um actually they'll probably get bored you know but same old things, same old responses so it is incredibly important that their minds are always open to the new the different the exciting it's so exciting teaching small children and, and, and and helping their minds develop and you know, teachers always say, or parents always say, somebody said something very funny today. All children say something funny, but also children say things which are very profound. And you need to listen to their voice very, very carefully. Everything, everything I do in nursery should be led by the children's voice as well. That's so important.
1: Yes, it's it's a huge um, quality and integral quality. In fact, in being a leader, be, having that ability to listen um, in any context, but in this one, it's especially important, um, as you've uh, just outlined there.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, to me, you know, the adult voice is important, but listen to the child. Listen to the child. They will they will tell you. They will always tell you the truth.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, you do, of course, um, hear it said uh, quite often that especially a child's eyes are unable to, uh, to tell lies. So, um, I, that I agree with you there completely, Claire. It's very, very true. Um, as well as what's going on in the current climate with, of course, the outbreak and the fact that lots of nurseries are having to close and there are, of course, um, a lot of financial worries there on the one hand, what would you say are the other uh, main challenges that the sector is having to grapple with at the moment other than that?
2: I think, that I think actually the sector would also say parents. I think that we, well, at least my nursery, I think the sector itself is, this is going to be an enormous challenge to them, and I think that we need to be seen to be offering to parents a curriculum, a curriculum they can go on with their child. Not a strict and rigid curriculum, but ideas. Ideas for play. Ideas for everything that we can do. Um, we've set up something um, called Taphole's Clubs on their Instagram. I hope everyone to say that. We're, we're putting in, this is just the holidays, we're just putting in little things. My teacher's reading stories, my teacher's doing little games, my teacher's uh, doing the tours of our, our garden at school, showing how things are growing. So that's for now. But I think going forward as we don't have a timeline on this, um, the parents are going to need more input from us as to how we can help with a child's psychology. I think that we are sort of wanting to, from next term, we're in holidays now, which we are very much sticking to, wanting to to sort of show the parents that we are there with our early years foundation stage, but not stressing them, because we have to recognize that some of these poor parents have three or four children at home. And to try and deliver curriculum to all of them, I think the poor parent will be going absolutely crazy. So we need to sort of make sure that they're not getting stressed about this as well. Um, it, It is a question of a fine balancing act. And I do think that some nurseries are gonna find this very, very hard to deliver. Um, the smaller nurseries the nurseries who aren't perhaps as well prepared as we have been because once uh, I think it happened started happening about March eighth that parents were self isolating with their children, taking them out um out of sheer fear. And we realized then that we were going to have to probably set up something outside. Mm -hmm. So we did have fair warning. We have been able to do it. But I do think quite a few nurses will have been caught on the hop over this.
1: Yes, um, and that's a real shame. Um I have to say, Claire, um, you mentioned um, very interestingly there, um, your use of um Instagram and other um sources in that sense. I think um, given the situation, I mean, it is an opportunity for nurseries that are still running to really take advantage of that opportunity of using more interactive learning mediums, isn't it? That will be the way forward just for the interim period.
2: I, I think it's the only way. But I think also to contact with their parents, all my key my teachers all have key children and they're in constant contact with the parents of those key children, as am I, as am I uh, to ensure that if a child is having difficulties over this, tantrums will be a thing going forward, I think you will find. Um, because I fear that, that children will be anxious, because they will know that their parents are anxious, and atmospheres affect children in, in so many different ways. So it's, Giving that sort of help to parents as well as the sort of just ideas and, you know, we can do this, we can do that, which are lovely. And at the moment, I think poor parents, I think everybody's being swamped by, well, I shouldn't think they've got a minute in their day (laughs) to relax really at the moment with all the ideas that's coming out of everywhere. And I would say, you know, take those ideas. Take the ones that will suit you. They're not going to suit everybody. Um, You know, just say this will suit my family. This won't suit my family. And I think going forward, that is all we can do. And we we were there like a sort of uh, a ship with a rudder going forward and hoping that, you know, people will come to us if they need us.
1: Absolutely and um that idea of translating ideas into things that work for individual families and things which will enhance that family uh, dynamic and atmosphere is hugely important because it's not just about of course keeping a child occupied it's about trying to sort of lift that anxiety in the home that's going on at the moment isn't it Exactly
2: exactly And um, um uh, I, yeah so- No 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 continue
1: no, absolutely. I was, I was about to say that. I completely um agree with you, uh, Claire. That um, like I say, I mean, that one of the big issues here is that uh, children do essentially feel that their parents are anxious, and that affects their mood. It, it of course, causes tantrums within the home. So it's important to try and ease that sort of negativity as well.
2: It, it is very important, and I, you know, I, I do expect parents, parents themselves, are going to be, you know, <laughs> with all. Having a husband or a wife who either of which are birthing or, or working usually or both working at home constantly um it's it's learning the routines of dividing that labor with the children of you know one not being left all day with them and the other not being left half day with them and and and, and it's just such an unusual situation and 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 learning your way through it is it's going to be really tough for everybody and um and as I say again, with three or four children, you might have one who's practic- you know, trying to do GCSEs, one who's in primary, one in early years. You know, you've got all those children to cater for. You've got lots mm. of children to cater for. It's trying to, to, to set up, most importantly, I think, is routines. Routines where the child can do things for themselves as well. But children love, particularly young children, love a routine. So, you know, if they have snack time, we will be putting out our routines. Okay, this is when they have snack time at school. Maybe you can replicate that at home. Um, You know, using the same as we do, sort of cut up fruit, helping them cut the fruit, that sort of thing. I have recommended not too much baking because I think uh, if they get too much sort of sugar to get sweet baking. We might have always these children on a massive sugar high. So um I was I have been sort of trying to say to parents, you know, try and keep to the normal really. As yes. far as you can.
1: Yes, absolutely right. And um the, the importance of the the routine is um it's integral, isn't it? Not just of course for a child's psychology because it is something that they do they do enjoy, but also for their general health as well. It's um, absolutely massive.
2: Oh it is massive and it's really, really important and um you know, we don't I, I really don't want to overburden parents with everything we're doing, but you know, what I've have said, I've just put out letter today, is, you know, these are what we'll be doing, but you know, you don't have to do it all in one day. You don't, you know, to because I've put out a, a curriculum I will be putting out a curriculum starting in April. You don't have to, to stick entirely to it. So if a child doesn't want to do it, rather like a nursery, we wouldn't force them to do it. So, you know, Think out of the box a little bit on that.
1: Absolutely. And I think it will certainly resonate the fact that nurseries um, like yourselves are really trying to be there at this time, really trying to thrust ideas into the home and come up with things that really work in the family dynamic and are really going to sort of help children maintain that day-to-day activity and really make sure that they are in the best place when they do eventually uh, come to return to um, their education as well. I think that's... Exactly, exactly. And um, finally, Claire, before we do um, wrap things up today, um, what I would really uh, like to um, understand is what you think the next few months are going to hold for yourself for Tadpole's Nursery and what you really hope to achieve in that time, especially beyond COVID-19.
2: Um, I hope to just achieve a sense of some normality for the child, some help for parents to keep my school running and going so we have something to look forward to when this eventually ends, something to grow for, something that my school should be continue into a, a, a happy, safe and secure future. Um, at the moment, we are sailing uncharted waters, but this is what I am trying to achieve. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. And uh, let's hope that we do start seeing um, some real tangible progress with that sooner rather than later. And that upward trajectory does begin um, before too long. Um, The light at the end of the tunnel, as we say, um, we don't know how long it will be until we see that, but let's hope that it is sooner rather than later indeed.
2: Well, I think actually a lot of good is going to come out of this for society as well as the tragedy tragedy of what's happening with, with so many people ill and dying. But I think as a society, we should come out of this a bit more cohesive, a bit more understanding of each other with any hope um, that, that that should be achieved. and um, So I think the light might be very good at the end of the tunnel eventually.
1: Yes, um, I agree with you. There's a great deal of potential coming out the end of this to um, emerge not just um, as a, a stronger nation but also a more cohesive one as well in um, every walk of life. Um, I have to say, Claire, it's been an absolute pleasure and also incredibly insightful having you on the, uh, the programme today. And Thank
2: you very much. It's been lovely talking to
1: you. Likewise. And I also think it would be fantastic to perhaps um, have you back on in a few months' time to look at all of this retrospectively once again and just see how things have panned out in that respect. So thanks ever so much for taking the time to speak with me
2: well, I'd love to do that and thank you very much for this morning as well.
1: It's been wonderful, Claire, and uh, most importantly as well, thanks so much for uh, being willing to share uh, your views with our listeners as well.
2: Yes, and keep well and healthy yourself.
1: Absolutely, uh, very important in these times, I so do take care. Thank you. I hope you all enjoyed my interview with Claire and especially learning more about the challenges facing the early years education sector and how the whole team at Tadpole's Nursery continues to raise standards. If you've not heard it before, coming up next is Jonathan White's exclusive conversation with Leaders' Council Chairman and former Education Secretary, Lord David Blunkett. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to David. Here it is now.
3: Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party. Apart from, I'm sure, your delight that a certain someone is leaving a post, what are your thoughts on it so far?
0: Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, Are they in in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she can reach out to people that others can't. So I'm I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional, mm. very able, and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two... Uh, actually, come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism,
3: especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism.
0: Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat. Uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, we we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, in the first 10 years certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the, the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before, Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what chivalent is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms mm. of... Uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher Home Secretaries because the people that I cared about most were on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech tech companies which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a, a single nation just off the coast of europe and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world? Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, An ageing population. Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. ...staggeringly bad. Um, And And climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain, or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us.
3: No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies certainly. And spe- speaking of your time uh, as home section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes,
0: I mean, I, it's on the theme of bottom up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who in really really difficult circumstances were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn to if you like lighting a candle inside them uh, giving them a, a a window on the world which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to uh, if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamentally in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So... You can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in in business. You can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that. The Contribution to uh, new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th- those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other.
3: Oh, You can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a um, uh, uh extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to, given your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day basis. And without them half of society wouldn't function.
0: I ca- completely. I, I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I, I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in his conference speech the year before he stood down as prime minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant, he said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the authority that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh,
3: And I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any
0: of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that, And they have a clear idea themselves. They they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities. They know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper. And I don't pretend for a minute over the years (laughs) that that I haven't. How to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's, How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, Mm -hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating. I suppose you would call it plagiarising thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that... um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game
3: well everyone knows uh, David you know you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan it I know can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week afterwards no week.
0: I, it isn't although it's damn good for Sheffield so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment That's very about very good Sheffield United in the Premier League because it it it's change it does change it lifts the image of the city internationally if you're not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City, then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I I, I could cry sometimes. We can we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them two nil in. January, and then you can, lose 5-0 yeah, at yeah. home to Blackburn and half the fans were out of the ground by by half-time. What, what
3: would a manager blanket say in this situation? I,
0: I would have asked myself a very simple question. What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive an incentive to take hold of the game what what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have, something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to Ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah,
3: well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults, uh, He has been said in the past he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well,
0: I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world, you can pronounce on what you're going to do, but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it, if they're just toadies, by the way, and there is a tendency, a new Mm -hmm. prime minister, large majority, got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them, but get able people in. I, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are (laughs) clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about Mm. Sky, isn't worth their salt. If, Part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for, a, for a, a, an easy morning television program, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also
3: I should add that is how uh, these all stripes earn that respect in the first place.
0: But there is a question, isn't and there? And try and answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always try to answer or the questions. Or
3: be very good
0: at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, "I'm I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why."
3: Quite. Uh, <laughs> at the um, and I think that one of the great things about uh, the Leeds Castle, especially, is that um, it takes and talks to people. But again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether as leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary, when people are looking at you for
0: leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, You can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about, and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors, and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in in the end, you've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they they... It's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics you you just in the wrong department I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also I had a read over in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognize, which is why being part of a broader team being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> a, because otherwise you blow with the wind that that that's the the measure and i think if we can share those traits those experiences those different elements through the leadership council if we can get people from very very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform it will avoid people reinventing the wheel. it will take people a lot further than the, the niche for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment.
3: Um, David, the very uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit, uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January, and where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league?
0: Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in, indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very, very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that... What they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. And, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months... I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do, I think we could pull it off. But I am really reluctant
3: and I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blanket, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you,
0: Jonathan.
1: As always, it has been a pleasure both listening to and learning from our guests. I and Jonathan White hope you all enjoyed listening. And until next time, since sadly all of the pubs are closed, Jonathan and I will be sitting in his front room with a bottle of Merlot and raising a glass to raising standards. Hopefully we can reoccupy our usual corner in the Westminster Arms soon. Remember... Look after yourselves, stay home, save lives. Goodbye. thank you for listening to our podcast you can find every episode on itunes youtube and spotify the views expressed by each guest in the podcast are their own they do not represent the opinions of the parliamentary review westminster publications Lord pickles lord blunkett david curry or any other guest on the podcast if you'd like to know more about the parliamentary review please visit www.theparliamentaryreview.co.uk